Good morning, family, and uh, I just want to agree with Debbie. I was at the rehearsal on Tuesday evening and already just felt such a sense of the Lord's presence. So come tonight. Our Christmas celebration is a, is, a little, is, a, is a time where we worship the Lord. That's our main focus. It's not firstly something that you come and visit or watch and just a show. It's not for entertainment. It's a time where we come to honor the Lord. We do it in a bit of a different way. We use Christmas carols. We use normal singing. And as you can see, there's going to be 17 singers on stage plus a 30-plus choir at the back. And we've got a full orchestra. And it's going to be a fantastic time. So please join us for that. It's going to be a great evening. For this morning's message, I want to jump right into James chapter 4. And uh, James chapter 4 is this wonderful passage that where he begins, and I'll read it for you just now, where he starts with, why are there fights among you? How many of you can remember times when, like I can remember so clearly, when my mother would barge into a room and would say, why are you fighting to me and my brother? Normally it was his fault, but they would be fighting. That would be going on. He's younger than me, so it's always his fault. But, uh, you know, and, and it's like that where James comes and he writes to this community of faith and he's talking to them about this reality that is in relationships where sometimes we disagree and we have conflict with each other. And uh, I think the timing of this is interesting. We didn't really plan it that it would be today that we'd speak about this portion of Scripture. But uh, I don't know about you in your family. Often December becomes a time where, where you can step into a bit of conflict. Perhaps it has to do with the fact that we're tired. It also has to do with the fact that we're spending time with each other a little bit more. We're a little bit more in closed spaces. Like we, when we go away, we're all in a, in a tent space together for three weeks almost and, and uh, in different situations. And sometimes, you know, the, the, the desires, we all want to do our own thing over December. We all want to do because we feel we've worked hard the year. We deserve a rest and we deserve to do what we want to do. And with a family of six, that sometimes is six different things. But fortunately, I'm the head of the household. So they all get to do what I decide. That is my little dream for life, that that would be the case. But it's, and sometimes, you know, when you've got family coming to visit, you remember there's a reason why you only see them once a year. And uh, you have the little conflict that comes up. But James writes to us uh, by extension and writes to these communities, these messianic communities of the time. And he writes about how do we deal with quarrels and fights and things that arise within us. So let's read the scripture and then uh, I'll just make a couple of comments about it. James 4 verse 1. What is causing the quarrels and fights among you? Can I ask that question of, of you, your family, perhaps your church experience? Have you had quarrels and fights within a community of faith? Perhaps your work experience, wherever you are, perhaps as part of this nation, what causes the quarrels and fights among us? Don't they come from the evil desires at war within you? You want what you don't have, so you scheme and kill to get it. You are jealous of what others have, but you can't get it, so you fight and wage war to take it away from them. Yet you don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it. And even when you ask, you don't get it because you mo your motives are all wrong. You want only what will give you pleasure. Now, as we tackle these things, I want to remind you of last week, we spoke about the two kinds of wisdom that we live our lives by. On the one hand, we can have the wisdom from above, which is God's wisdom, which becomes our wisdom when we live a life of humility. A life of humility is simply a life that says, I put God first in everything. Everything comes from God and is for God. That's a life of humility. And from that place, if you live a life 
with that direction in your heart, with that intention, where you say, Lord, in everything I wanted to please you, I want to honor you and to glorify you. There's a wisdom that comes to us from that place. But there's also the wisdom of this world or the wisdom from below. And that wisdom comes to us when we live not the life of humility, but the life of pride, which is actually the life that says it's all about me. It's about my will. It's about what I want in life. It's how do I get what I deserve? How do I get what I need? When, when I live my life like that, there's a different wisdom that comes, and it's the wisdom of this world. Now, obviously, when James tackles the issues of how do we deal with conflict in a community of faith and in, in, in the specific communities that he's talking about, he's, he's talking about the wisdom from above. He's talking about as humble people that says everything is about God. How do we deal with conflict if even we see that our conflict is a space to glorify God? So often conflict is so negative for us. When we disagree with somebody, when we have an argument with somebody, when, we, when, we look, when we're at, at odds with somebody, whether it's somebody in our family that's close to us, whether it's just somebody at work, whether it's some, a national thing that we're at odds with some politician and what they represent or some person and what they say, it's a negative thing for us and, and it, it weighs upon us, it causes such stress on us and it causes negative emotions. But I, I want to say to you that conflict can become a great place where God's will can be established and God can be glorified if we deal with it correctly, if we deal with it from a place of God's wisdom. So from that place, James starts unpacking a little bit what causes conflict in us. And he's, he's talking in general, but he's also talking quite specific. I want to remind you, he's talking to communities, these messianic communities that are people that are struggling financially and socially. They are in a situation where their, their money is becoming less and less because they are being ostracized by their Jewish communities because they've now begun to believe in Jesus. So their businesses are not doing as well. They're struggling to perhaps feed their families, to look after their physical needs. They, they don't have a sense of provision and they also don't have a sense of safety and protection because it can, socially people are turning their backs on them. They're pushing them away. They're rejecting them from the community. They're saying bad things about them. And so they are in a particularly difficult place. This is not James, just James writing about conflict abstractly. He's talking to people that are in a situation where perhaps conflict becomes even more possible because of the pressure that they're under and the struggles that they are having. And he says to these people, you that are in such difficulty, why is it that the conflict and the fighting is arising among you? Don't they come from the evil desires at war within you? Perhaps the conflict that you are seeing externally is due to the conflict that you are experiencing internally. And remember we spoke about this a while ago. Sorry for those of you that haven't been part of our series. Maybe good if you want to listen to the messages. But we spoke about it, about this idea that James has about desires. That, that the desires from the, from the Jewish Yatsar uh, uh, doctrine is this idea that we've all been given desires by God. And many of these desires are good desires. Our desire for protection, our desire for provision is a legitimate desire that God placed within us. My desire to, to feed my children, to look after my family, to see my children study, to see them progress in life, to, to leave them better off than what I was is a, is a godly desire. It's a legitimate desire. My desire to feel safe when I'm at home. My desire to feel safe when I'm driving on the roads and, and to feel safe when I'm, when I'm walking down the street. The desire of a woman in our nation to feel safe wherever they go is a legitimate desire. 
But we must be careful that those legitimate desires can cause us to, to, under pressure and through temptation, find illegitimate ways to address those desires and to fulfill those desires. And this is what he's saying to them. He's saying, you are under pressure at the moment, so I want you to recognize that your desires can become evil. And that's why he says, don't they come from the evil desires? that are at war within you. He's not saying your desires in and of itself is evil, but the way that you are trying to attend to these desires and fulfill these desires can become evil. And you and I can understand this. If you're in a situation where people are causing you financial difficulty, if you're in a situation where people that are close to you, people of your own community are turning against you, talking bad about you and therefore withholding business from you that you are now being not able to feed your children, it puts pressure on you. And it's very easy in those spaces to start thinking, how am I going to get my own? How am I going to look after myself? And that those ways that we want to look after ourselves can become twisted and can become pushed through temptation and we will be tempted to do things in a way that is not honoring God. You want what you don't have, so you scheme and kill to get it. He's writing to people that don't have, that are experiencing lack because of other people. They don't have enough food. They don't have enough money. They can't pay for their children's education or something. And, and when they look around them, they see their own friends and family members doing well and being able to look after themselves and having what they need and it stirs something within you. I mean, I think we've all been in those situations where we feel it's unfair, it's not right. Why must I struggle? Why, why must we go without? Why must we not have? And we look around at others and we say, but look at them. They're so blessed, they, they, they've got everything they need. And it's easy in those moments for what he describes here for schemes to start arising within us. Have you ever felt schemes arising within you when you're under pressure? You start scheming. How can I pay a little bit less tax? Is there some ways that I can, that I can find a loophole in the tax so that I can just you know, get a little bit more money? I, I, I use that example because in, in my work here and between the South and the East Church, and I can claim for certain, by, by law I'm allowed to claim for certain kilometers that I drive. And, but I can't claim if I drive from, work, from home here, I can't claim. But if I go to the South Church office first and then come here, I can claim. So sometimes I'm very tempted to just drive past the South Church office, hoot, wave at them, and then come here. <laughs> the schemes, you know. So pray for me. <laughs> I know none of you ever scheme. But isn't it that we start scheming, we start thinking, how can I get when, you know, surely I need, surely God wants me to have, and we start scheming. Sometimes our scheming becomes at the cost of others, that we start thinking, how can I just get a little bit more money out of my customers than, than what actually is right? How, how can I scheme and pay my staff a little bit less than what, they, that what is right and good and just? How can, I, how can I just cut this corner? And we start scheming when we're under pressure. And if our scheming continues, we can even get to the place where he says, and you want to kill to get what you want. And I mean, that's extreme. 
But we mustn't think that even good Christian people under pressure will not be tempted to go to that extreme to illegitimately provide for a legitimate desire. I don't know if you've watched the movie Paul the Apostle, the Apostle of Christ. It was released last year or the previous year. If you've you've not watched it, can I encourage you to go watch it? They do a great job in it where they show these Christian communities and particularly the Christian community where where Luke came to go visit Paul. It was around that time and and Paul's in prison and the the community's under pressure because their own is being killed and being burnt alive outside of the city walls and, and this community's under this pressure of hatred and under this persecution. And so some in the community start saying, listen, the only way we're gonna survive this is if we take up arms and if we start fighting back, and if we start killing the Romans before they kill us, then we will survive. And there's this internal battle in this community, and and Luke and Paul has to say, no, that's not God's way. And it's a similar situation here, where if the pressure builds, our legitimate desires can twist, be twisted by our own humanity and the temptations of the evil one to really take on bad ways and evil ways that we try and fulfill them. So you fight and wage war to take it away from them. He says you don't have what you, what you need, so you scheme and kill to get it. You are jealous of what others have, but you can't get it, so you fight and wage war to take it away from them. Yet you don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it. You see, and this is the, the, the trouble in this world. We live in a world and when we're under pressure and we feel we don't have what we need, it's so easy in this world to start developing a mentality of there's not enough to go around and the only way I'm gonna get is if I take it from somebody else. If they have, it means I can't have. And we slip right into that temptation to feel feel that that's the overriding truth of life. And it reminds me of Right there in the garden, just after the Garden of Eden. Cain and Abel, Adam and Eve's first, the firstborn on this earth, their first children, was in a similar situation, what was developing. Where Cain started observing that his brother has more than he has. That his brother has access to something that gives him more than what Cain has. And Abel is being blessed and he, and he, and he, and he sees that God is favoring Abel. And, and for some other reason, he's not developing the same as what Abel has. And he starts believing this. He says, because Abel's got much, that's why I've got little. And, and, and envy and jealousy starts building up within him. Every time he sees his brother, he sees he's driving a new car. And he goes, why is it? Why must he drive a new car and I've still got the same car? What is, what, he's not better than me. He doesn't deserve more than what I do. Why do I have less than he has? Every time he sees him, he looks like he's just going forward in life and he's so happy. And, and you know what it's like. Come on. You know what it's like when you're feeling like we're just holding, we're just, you know, woo, we're just trying to not sink and we're just trying to keep ends meet and, you know, we're just praying that they have diapers on Good Friday special if you're in that stage of life so that, oh, perhaps it'll give us a little bit of breathing space and, you know, what? and you just feel like, and then your neighbors, they forever on this overseas holiday and buying new stuff and you go, why? I work harder than they do. I'm a better person than they don't even go to church. They don't even tithe. I tithe. Why is it? And the psalmist writes about it so often that we look at the unrighteous and we say, whoo, 
And we feel like, why not us? And we've got to be so careful because it's so quick that that starts forming in us. And I mean, it's very real in our nation. We live in the nation that has the greatest disparity between wealth and poor. It creates an ideal circumstance within that injustice and within that which is not right and unrighteous for feelings to start developing within us. And it's, it's so great. I love Genesis 4 verse 6 where God comes to Cain and he's aware he can see. And he does exactly the same as James does. James starts James 4 and he says to this community, why, why, why are you fighting? Why are you quarreling? God comes to, to Cain and he says, why are you angry? Why are you so downcast? Why do I see this anger building in you? Why is this depression taking hold of you? What's going on with you? And then he says to him these very important words in verse 7. If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? You see, because Cain's problem was he felt he could see that God was favoring his brother Abel. And there was blessing on Abel. And he thought, now what's wrong with me? Why am I not being accepted? Why am I not being favored? What must I do? And, and, he, and he probably felt, you know, I'm, being, I'm, I'm working hard. I'm tilling the soil. I'm planting. I've got, I'm doing everything right. But yet he just gets getting blessed and I'm not getting blessed. What must I do to be accepted? And then God says to him, just keep doing what is right. Keep your focus on yourself. Do what you have to do. And if you continue to do what I ask of you and what is right for you, you too will find favor. And that's God's sovereign plan. You can't mess with that. But we all know how the story goes. And God says to Cain, he says, but if you do not do what is right, if you don't keep your focus on what I'm asking of you, what is right for you to do, what is the right way to live, how to be faithful and to be committed to what is right. If you don't do that, if you keep looking at your brother, if you keep being envious for what he has, if you keep making him your focus, he says to him, sin is crouching at the door of your heart. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Sin is crouching at the door of our hearts. It's looking for a way in. It's looking for an opportunity to take hold of us and to destroy us and to destroy others. And when we allow these feelings to take hold of us, it can lead to this. And we know that Cain was not able to take hold of... You missed that. Yes, hey? Come on. That's clever. Cain was not able to take hold of his... Sin and his emotions. Now some of you are starting to get it. So I'll say it a third time. Cain was not able to take hold of his emotions and his desires. And he ended up killing his brother. Because he believed that for his, if his brother wins, he loses. So therefore, if he wants to win, his brother must lose. Can I tell you, in God, it does not work like that. God has more than enough for everybody. God provides. God is faithful. And if we keep on saying, Lord, I trust you, that's the position of humility. I trust you, Lord, and what you're asking of me and what I must do, the surrendered life I must live, what, what my station is life is, I will do that. God provides. He doesn't have to take away from somebody else to give to somebody. And in our nation, we must remember that. When it comes to the relationship between men and women, we so easily can be in a place where if one must win, the other must lose. 
and violence breaks out and violence erupts in our gender relationships because of that very thing of one must dominate over the other and one must take what, the, what belongs to the other and there's no space for everybody. It's some versus others and we come into a win-lose which ultimately ends in a lose-lose arrangement. But in God, it's possible that God was saying to Cain, if you keep doing what's right, you will win and your brother will win. Everybody will win. But he couldn't do that. James is writing, he's using that same language to these communities. He's saying, be careful that you don't buy into that philosophy, that you don't start thinking that you must take from your family members and your community and the Romans around you that are oppressing you, that the only way for you to get out of this is to take what is theirs. And if you've killed them, if you've overthrown them, and you can have what used to be theirs, then you'll be okay. He's saying, no, there's a different way. Must injustice and this disparity between rich and poor be dealt with 100%. We must, it is an issue of righteousness, justice, and equity. It's so highly important to God. It's legitimate that we address these things in our nation and in our world, but we must not address them from the wrong wisdom, but from the right wisdom, the wisdom of God. How do we do this? And this is the big scale, but this is the same thing that plays out in our families. In our church communities, it's the same thing that happens. We're consistently dealing with one another, and so often there's disagreements that arise in us because my desire and what you desire comes at odds with each other. And we start having arguments and fights and and things that break out, and then conflict arises because of that. And so often I think as Christian people, we can, we can feel that whenever there's conflict in us, in a community of faith, we failed. But can I tell you this morning that when there's conflict that arises, it's not a sign of failure. We've only failed if we don't deal with the conflict appropriately. Conflict will happen. Conflict's gonna be part of our story. We're gonna disagree with each other. In this church, we're going to disappoint each other. We're gonna... We're going to disagree with each other. We're going to see things differently. And that's okay as long as we have the way, the godly wisdom of how do we deal with our conflict. I mean, in your family, the people that you love the most, the people that are the most important to you, aren't they the very same people that you have the most conflict with? Amen? Please tell me that's true for you also. I mean, Natasha is the person in the world I love the most, but it's the person in the world I can make the most upset. She never upsets me because she's perfect in all of her ways. But I can upset her, man. I can make her angry because we love each other. And it's part of our community experience, even in our faith. You know, the more involved you get into a church in a community of faith, the more your opportunities for conflict goes up. And if you want to be, if you, if you want to work in heaven, don't come and work at the church. This is not heaven. We are real people with real challenges. But can I tell you, for us as a church staff, the 140, 150 people that work here that are employed at Hatfield, the way we solve our disagreements and our conflict is of such great importance to us. And we work hard at it. That we use the opportunities that we have when there's conflict to move us forward, not to go backwards. And often conflicts become great moments where you take huge step forward 
if you deal with it rightly. And we've got systems and structures in place, and I'm speaking out of some of that even this morning. But if you're a leader in this church, you'll know this great moments for conflict. If you volunteer in this church, if you just come here every now and then, you, probably, you, you may even have conflict with us. It's part of humanity. I love what a person by the name of Robert D. Jones said when he said, whenever there is conflict, it is because, and this is what he said, it is the failure to please God. Our failure or the other person or both of us, it's the ultimate cause of relational conflict. Bank on it. Whenever there is conflict, one or both parties are not pleasing God. So conflict, when there's disagreement, becomes these great opportunities for us to stand still and to say, Lord, how can we honor you? How can we glorify your name? How can we use this as an opportunity to grow, to love you more, and to love each other more? And I think as Christians, we have to have that approach to conflict. That's the humility. Remember when I said God's wisdom is, in this, is, is based in this humility of everything's about him. So even my conflict's about him. Conflict becomes great opportunities in my life to discern what is it that is upsetting me? Have I really surrendered this to God or is it this about me? So I want to just share with you a couple of things. And I want to thank Mika. She helped me and Sean, Pastor Sean, who's injured his foot so he's not here, that helped me just prepare some of this and... Uh, uh, and just some of these ideas about how do we deal with conflict? How do we step forward in conflict? And I'd like you to just think about these things. Perhaps you can apply them in your home or in your family life or uh, in your workplace or even here at church where we are with one another. So whenever we want to deal with conflict, we want to start with a place of surrender. Lord, this is not about what's right for me. This is not about what I want or what I believe. What do you want, Lord? How do we honor you? How do we establish your truth and your will? How do we make sure that you are pleased through this situation? When we do that, there's a wisdom that becomes available to us of how to deal with conflict that I believe if we could just do more of that, this nation would, would so benefit from this. Different personalities deal with conflict differently, don't they? Generally in a household, you'd have one that avoids conflict at all costs, that will do whatever they can to just not talk about the problem, that just believes if we ignore it, it'll get better. And then you have another one that thinks the more we talk about it and the louder we talk about it, the more we're going to solve the problem. How many of you know that different personalities deal with conflict differently? But can I tell you that it doesn't matter if you're a person that doesn't like conflict and wants to avoid confrontation or talking with somebody about a problem, whether you're a person that really wants to talk about it and wants to talk about it now and wants to talk about it loudly, it doesn't matter which one you are, both parties has to, all parties has to come to conflict and say, Lord, how do I serve your purposes in this? What must I do? How do I serve you? One of the first things you have to decide when it comes to dealing with a situation where you are in confrontation with somebody else is you have to decide, must I do something about it or must I do nothing about it? Must I have a conversation or must I overlook it? It's a very important thing to decide. But as long as you know that both is a very active thing that you're doing. Sometimes people think that if you don't talk about a problem, it means you're avoiding it. That if you're doing it because that's what 
is right for the situation, and that's the wisdom of God. It's a very positive, active thing that you're doing. It's not ignoring something. It's choosing to overlook something, and that requires certain action. Now, those of you that have been in our church long enough will know the circle that we talk about, the circle of change, and we talk about, well, how do you respond to moments? Conflict moments are great kairos moments, great moments that call us to attention to respond to something. And you'll know that in the circle, there's the first three parts of the circle is observe, reflect, discuss. And that's a great way to sometimes decide, how do I deal with, I'm upset now about something. Somebody said something, somebody did something, and I'm upset To decide what you must do about it, it's good to, first of all, observe. What happened? What happened? Describe it to yourself. Think through what happened. Why did this upset me so much? A good prayer to pray in that moment is to say, Lord, why am I so upset with what what happened? So that you can get a handle on what is going on. Observe it. Think through it. That person, in my, according to my perspective, what I experienced, the person said the following or did the following. Think about it. Quantify it for yourself. Describe it. Then reflect on it. Observe is to look at it, understand it. Reflect is what impact has it had on me and what impact will it continue to have on me or others. This thing this person said or this thing they did impacted in me and it made me feel this way and, 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 or others and, and get quantified again. So that you understand what what went on. It may be necessary that you discuss it with somebody. Obviously, this is you have to do very carefully. Don't discuss doesn't mean gossip. Doesn't mean try and win over somebody to support your viewpoint. If you discuss it, it means you find a mature person that's not involved in the situation. That you may not even have to describe names with or describe the situation in detail. But that you say, I want you to check my heart. This is what happened. This is what it made me feel like. I want you to check my heart. Once you've done that, it's a good time to then say, now, Lord, what do you want me to do about this? And it may be then that the Lord says, you overlook it. I don't want you to do anything. The best thing in this situation is that you say nothing. Saying nothing doesn't mean, okay, I'm going to say nothing for now. (laughs) I'm keeping it in my back pocket. Saying nothing isn't the bullet that you put in the chamber and say, I'm not going to fire this round now, but believe me. I'm going to fire it somewhere down the line. If the Lord says you overlook it, you say, thank you, Lord. I put it in your hands. It's yours now. And then you say, I forgive and I release. And I'll talk a little bit about forgiveness just now, how that works. But you put it actively in his hands. Every time you get reminded of it, you don't stew about it. You don't think about it more. You don't build the argument more. You say, thank you, Lord. I've put this in your hands. I've released it. Or it may be that the Lord says, you need to have a conversation. You need to confront the situation. There's three parts to a good confrontation. What you do before the confrontation, what you do during the confrontation, and what you do after the confrontation. So if I believe I've got to go and speak to somebody, there's what I do before, and I've described some of that already to you. What do you do before you go to the confrontation? You firstly go to the Lord and make sure that you have got his perspective, that you've surrendered your heart to him, that you, that you come to him and say, Lord, I may be upset and it may be because of something in my heart that is not in the right place. Help me. That's humility. I first go to the Lord. I pray about it. I pray for the other person. 
I make up my mind that before I go to speak to the person, that my objective in going to speak to the person is to forgive them and to restore relationship with them. If that's not your objective, don't even bother. Because then you're not on God's path of wisdom. God's path of wisdom leads to restoration when it's possible. But it has to be the heart's decision we make before the time. If I'm gonna go talk to somebody, it's to improve the situation. It's to find what is truth, what is loving, and it is to step into that so that God's name can be on. Not so that I can be heard. Not so that I can say what I wanna say. Not so that my point can come across merely. That all happens within the humility of God. What is it that you want? That's what I do before the time. We pray so that truth will be revealed, that love will be established, so that even if I realize as I'm speaking to the person I was wrong, I'm committed to the truth, even if the truth is not what I did, because I want truth and love to be established. So that's what I do before. What do I do during the confrontation? Now I've decided, I've made an appointment, I'm gonna go see somebody, we're gonna talk about something. What do I do during that? I think first of all, very important is that you put your emotions under your control. When we upset, we have emotions, and that's fine. The Bible says be angry, but do not sin in your anger. It's fine, but don't speak from emotions. Don't let your emotions run away with you. Don't go to try and offload your emotions. One of the fruits of the Spirit is self-control after all. Have the ability to say, I'm feeling upset, and that's okay. But I'm putting that under control. A way that you do that is when you go to speak to people, I think there's three things you want to be very clear of. So this is while I'm speaking to somebody, I want to be clear about three things that I'm communicating. The first thing is I want to be clear about what I believe happened. And I want to communicate that clearly and succinctly and as short a sentences as possible. You said the following. In that situation, you said the following. Describe clearly this is what happened. The reason I'm upset is because this happened. First step. Be clear about what happened. Secondly, is be clear about why you believe it is wrong. According to your value system, you said this, and it, it is wrong because of this. What you did, I believe is wrong. Or it impacted negatively on me. It caused the following. I, that is the second Sorry I'm, I'm sorry, I'm actually going to the third thing. And the third thing is be clear about how it impacted on you or others. So I want to be clear about, when I speak to somebody, I want to clearly say to them, this is what happened, this is why I believe it was wrong, and this is how it impacted on me or others. Clearly, succinctly, without, as, with as little emotion as possible, with as many facts as possible. And you can say, this is my perception, this is what I experienced, but I'm clear about what happened, why I think it was wrong, and what impact it had on me. When you do this, do not be accusative. Don't accuse the other person. Explain the situation. Accusing, be careful of not developing personalized language, of making it about the person, make it about the problem. Stay with the problem, don't attack the person. Because the moment you do that, that's pride surfacing, and then you start aligning yourself with the wisdom that is from below, and later on we'll read that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. If you want God's grace in this situation to be able to deal with it, stay on the path of humility. 
don't accuse the person. Because the moment you accuse somebody, you actually put a distance between you and them. And you're elevating yourself and you're saying, you are worse than what I am. And it may be true, but it also can never be true because we all have our own stuff. Don't accuse the person and don't exaggerate. By exaggerate, you know those words. Don't say always and never. You always do this or you never do this. Because the moment you do that with me, my mind starts going, it's not true. I've done it this way. I've done it that. I'm not hearing what your complaint is anymore. I'm doing an audit in my mind. You know, if Natasha ever said to me, you never take out the dustbin, I say, no, no, I've got a date on the calendar. I can show you. So your argument is null and void because I can prove that it's not true. (laughs) Missed the whole point. But it's also just not, does not helpful. And then listen. Once you have now described with clarity what happened, why you feel it was wrong, and how what it impacted on you, then you give the other person opportunity to respond. And you listen. Because they may then be able to say, yes, it is what I said. Or no, it's not what I said. You misheard me completely. Or yes, it is what I said, but I don't believe I was wrong because according to my value system, this is what I was trying to do. And then you have a value discussion with each other. And and that can help you move that discussion forward. I don't have time to unpack all of that. Or it may be that it is what I said, this is why I said it, but I never intended it for that impact on you. You can have those discussions. What do you do after you've had that discussion? You go back to where you started with forgiveness. We forgive. It is the biblical mandate and requirement on all of us is that in every situation we forgive. And remember, forgiveness has got nothing to do whether the other person deserves it. Forgiveness is, that's God's wisdom. God forgave us and not one of us deserved it. Father, forgive us as we forgive those who trespass against us. I forgive because that's how God does it. Whether the other person deserves it or not does not come into my mind. I forgive. Are they going to do it again? I forgive. Jesus said 70 times 7 on the same day. I forgive. Forgiveness is our default position. May we always be quick to forgive. May it be the first reaction in our mind. When somebody does or says something that upsets us, we say, I forgive them. Forgiveness is what we do because that's what God does for us. That's how I imitate him and glorify him. When I forgive, it allows healing in my own heart. And it can possibly bring healing to the other person and the situation but it will definitely bring healing to me. Sometimes we say, I forgive, but we don't feel like we forgive. What do you do then? You keep forgiving till you feel like you've forgiven. You just keep saying, I forgive. Forgiveness is absolute in that sense. We have to forgive. Sometimes people say, I'll forgive, but I won't forget. Hey, what do you mean? Forgiveness changes the way you remember. Somebody did something to me, I may not be able to forget it, but how I remember it changes because I've forgiven them. What I remember changes. I remember that it happened, but I I pray, Lord, help me to remember and be wise in how I deal with this person, but keep me from being cynical and bitter. I remember differently. You know what, it really helps me when I've got a struggle with somebody is when I remember all the things God forgave me about. It helps me remember their things that differently also. I remember differently. Forgetting is an active, uh, 
Forgetting, just trying to forget, is maybe an active, passive process, but forgiving is an active process. It's something we pursue. It's something we strive for because that's what God does. It's a deliberate action we take. In Isaiah 43, verse 25, it's God says he remembers our sins no more. doesn't mean he can't remember them. He remembers them not the way that they happened, but he remembers them as having been forgiven. There's two components to forgiveness, and I'm going to end shortly. Worship team, you guys can join me. Thank you. There's two parts to forgiveness. There's the heart part, me, the internal heart part, my heart. And then there's the, the relational part, the external part of forgiveness. Between me and the party that offended against me or I offended against. And there's two different parts to this type of forgiveness or to forgiveness. When I say forgiveness is absolute, it's what we do in every situation. It speaks about the heart part. My heart in every situation is I forgive. And my heart is always I want to see restoration in the relationship. But it's not always possible because of the second part of forgiveness, the relational part. You see, if somebody hurts me in some way, I forgive them. They don't have to explain it. They don't have to apologize. I forgive. But when they come and we have an interaction with one another and we can unpack the situation and agreement can develop between us as to what happened and we can speak out forgiveness against each other and we can make a commitment towards each other to grow in our relationship, then restoration becomes possible in a new way. Whether restoration is possible or not, I always forgive. But forgiveness can do its best where restoration is possible. And that's what we seek. Now sometimes somebody does something to me and I can't restore it. Just for practical reasons, it's not possible. Or I may have even done something against somebody and for a reason they can't restore it with me. I must still forgive those people. I must still have a clean heart towards them. I must still have a heart that has no bitterness and anger. I still pray for their blessing. I still pray for their favor. I still pray for God's goodness over them. But our relationship's on pause. It can't move forward. And that sometimes is what it is. And sometimes that's the best that can happen. Sometimes in that time, that's what God wants to happen in that situation. But I pray that there'll come a day and it, it will not happen in every situation, I know that. But I pray that there'll come a day where we'll be able to sit down and talk and actually settle things and the relationship can take on the shape it has to for the future. The relationship may never be the strong as it was, but there can be a restoration in it. Or it can be that that relationship actually grows stronger from there. When it comes to people in my family, it needs to be stronger, even though what happened. But I need to understand that. So therefore, the last things I want to say is, if I understand that heart, if I flip it around to me and say, okay, I must be a person that is easy to restore with. I must be a person that if I've offended somebody, it must be easy for them to forgive, to, to have, live out that relational forgiveness towards me and to trust me again and to restore me. And what helps with that is the way I deal with when I've done something wrong to somebody. How do I deal and ask for forgiveness? Four steps. These are very short. First one is admit. Admit. I have done wrong in this. I have failed you. I said this or I did this. Don't say I said it, but. Just say I said it. It's wrong. I admit to it. Admit. 
explain what impact you feel it had on the other person. So when I go to somebody and I say, I'm so sorry I did this, and I understand it caused you pain in this area or it affected you. If I'm the person that's always late for a meeting, then I come and say, listen guys, I'm so sorry I'm late. And I know my lateness is causing you frustration and causing all of you to actually lose valuable time. It's the effect it's having. Thirdly then is I show remorse. How do I show remorse? Genuine remorse by saying, I'm so sorry. I apologize. I take responsibility for my actions. I apologize. And then the last step is make amends. Where possible and if possible, say, what can I do to correct this? What can I change to make this different? Show fruits in keeping with your repentance. Say, I'm so sorry I was always late for the meeting. I know it caused all of you frustration and and made you late. I'm so sorry that I did that. Please forgive me. And from now on, I want you to help me keep accountable. I'll be here five minutes before everybody else. I may be using public transport or I may be having children that needs to be dropped off at school, but I'm going to make an arrangement. It's my responsibility. I will make amends. If we all do that, it becomes quite easy for us to not just forgive, but to move forward. Would you like you to stand with me? These are very real, very difficult, but I... I know very true, real-to-home situations. Can we pray together? And can you just say this morning, Lord, I want to glorify you in everything. And Lord, it may be possible that I'm really bad at dealing with problem situations. I'm really bad at dealing with conflict. I try and avoid it always. I'll never speak to anybody and it just builds up in me and one day I just explode. Or I'm consistently fighting with everybody, never taking a moment, never being humble about it, never thinking about the other person and what's, Lord, help me. I submit myself to you and I want to honor you. Or it may be that right now as we pray that there's a situation that you remember and you say, and they just ask, Lord, how do I do that better? Is there something I need to fix now? Or is there something I can do different in the future? So just open our hearts before the Lord. Just open your heart to Him right now. This is a very important thing. Very real. There's people here that have got great stress on your life. It's because of this thing. There's great anger. There's great bitterness. There's a sense of being defeated. There's a sense of weakness, powerlessness, of being caught, being trapped. Come Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray for every person right now. And I pray that by your Spirit you will come and minister to us. Come and speak to us. Bring healing to our hearts. So that we as a Biblical Christian kingdom community, no matter what the pressure on us, can rise above and can stand out in this world because Jesus said that you, they will know us by our love for one another. May we love each other despite the challenges. May we love each other. 
in our nation, we pray, Lord. May we love each other. May race or gender or financial or educational standing not cause us to love one another. But let us love one another. Let us desire your kingdom above all else. Come Holy Spirit. I'm going to end the service, but I'm going to pray a prayer. Then if you need to go, you're welcome to go. But I'm going to ask the worship team to lead us in a song for if you want to stay. Just to allow the Holy Spirit a moment to just, just bring peace, strength. You may need to have known for a while now that you have to have a conversation. Can we pray that the Spirit will give you strength and wisdom? Or you may have to learn to just be, allow God's space before you speak, if you ever speak. Let's just pray together. Father, I bless every person here. Thank you, Father, for your love for them. May peace rule in our hearts and may your kingdom come through us. If there's any person that right now just needs ministry, you're welcome to come to the front. Our team will be here. They'll pray for you. If you're just in a situation where perhaps you feel so angry, just let somebody pray with you. Or perhaps you feel so defeated, let somebody pray with you. But as we worship, allow the Lord to speak to you. And if we'll see you tonight, may the Lord bless you. Have a fantastic day until we see you later. And may his grace be upon you. Thank you, Mika.